Well, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but I had this uh, message finished on uh, Friday and then woke up Saturday and basically said, no, no, I don't think this is it. And uh, I kind of rewrote everything. And then um, I went to bed last night, still kind of uh, wrestling with it. I got up about 3.15 this morning and I was like, no, you know what? I I think we're just gonna tear this one up and uh, do it all together different. So. I guess third time hopefully is a charm. Um, But today we're in part four of our series called Full of It for the Holidays. And if you haven't been here, there's still time to catch up from what you may have missed. Uh, We're talking about how to make this season truly wonderful. And not only this season wonderful, but how to make all the seasons of our life wonderful, wonderful, despite what those seasons may look like, what they may sound like, and what they may feel like. And we've been talking about if you want to make the season wonderful, then be grateful. Uh, that gratitude is this powerful thing, that it fixes our mind on the goodness of God. It, it, it focuses our heart on the goodness of God. And when we choose to be grateful, it, it puts us in alignment with God. And when we're in alignment with God and we're grateful to God and we're taking inventory of all the goodness that's in our lives, uh, it really does begin to make the season wonderful. And then we talked about if you want to make the season wonderful, just be faithful. Um, to choose to trust God and choose to believe that the God who makes the promise is going to be the God who keeps the promise no matter what. And then last week we talked about if you want the season to be wonderful, uh, then you've got to choose to be peaceful. You've got to step towards peace. You got to decide to cultivate peace, to protect peace, to act in the interest of peace, to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And when that happens, you'll have peace with God, you'll have peace with others, and you'll have peace with yourself. Uh, But today I wanna talk about something uh, that we all want, uh, but it doesn't come easy uh, to a lot of us, yet it's possible for all of us, uh, no matter what our current reality may be. And and today I want us to talk about joy. Uh, Joy is the thing that someone said, it adds both texture and flavor uh, to life. It really does. It makes makes life exciting. It makes life worth the living. In, In many ways, it puts life into life itself. Uh, Joy is the unrivaled alternative to misery. Uh, Misery has lots of different degrees along the spectrum and some people have a lot of it, some people have a little of it, but the alternative to misery, the alternative to discouragement, the alternative to living life down there in the dark dumpster and in the gutter is joy. Uh, Joy is a gladness, it's a gladness of the soul. It's a gladness that transcends the details of our life. Uh, There can be joy when you don't feel so well physically, there can be joy when things aren't so well financially. You can have joy when things aren't so well culturally. Joy transcends the details of your life and it transcends the details of my life. Uh, The Proverbs talks about how joy is what turns life from a famine to a feast. Uh, You can either choose to go through life and it be as if you're in the middle of a famine but you can choose also joy, which turns even famine into a feast. Uh, Joy has the power to fan your passion and to cultivate your motivation. Uh, Joy is what makes us resilient uh, when we're able to roll with the punches in life, when we're able to face life head on. Uh, Joy is a posture of the soul. Uh, It's an attitude of the heart. It's a framework 
of the mind. That, that's what joy is. It's a posture of the soul. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a framework of the mind through which we, which you and I, we interpret the world around us. Uh, joy is how we interpret not only our past, our present, but it's also how we look to the future. Uh, joy, ultimately, uh, it's connected to many things, but today I wanna talk about how joy is ultimately connected to our beliefs and our thoughts and our ideas about God, who he is and what he's like, and specifically how he feels about you and how he feels about me. At the end of the day, you can kind of get everything else in alignment. You can get all your other ducks in a row and you can do everything that you can do in order to make joy possible. But ultimately, joy begins. The headwaters of joy is ultimately connected to our beliefs and our ideas and our thoughts about God, who he is, what he's like and how he feels about me, how he feels about you and how he feels about the world. And that's why when you talk about joy, you also have to talk about Christmas because joy and Christmas are inextricably connected to one another. Uh, you can't separate the message and the meaning of Christmas apart from joy. Now, when you go back to the Old Testament, and a lot of us, we don't think of joy as being one of the characteristics of the Old Testament scripture, uh, but when the Old Testament prophets, when they would often speak about the future and specifically the arrival of Christmas, they would often associate the arrival of Christmas or the advent of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior with joy. And one in particular who did this over and over again was Isaiah the prophet. Uh, you can't hardly talk about Old Testament Christmas prophecies without talking about Isaiah because he just had so many of them. And so when Isaiah peered through the centuries and he looked into the future, and when he saw the coming of the Messiah, when he saw the coming of the King, when he saw the coming of the Savior of the world, he framed it this way when he wrote about it in Isaiah chapter nine. He says, the people, now that's me people, you people, we people, all the people of all the generations, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, if you've ever been out walking in pitch black darkness, you know what light is? Light is a good thing. Light is a wonderful thing. Light is a gift. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, a new day, a new era. Something has changed, something has shifted. And he says, what has shifted and what is going to happen, here's what it's gonna do. It's going to increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. In other words, Isaiah says, there's an event coming in the future which will usher light into the world. And this light is a gift to those who are in deep darkness. And this light is an opportunity, a brand new opportunity to see and think differently about everything, including God, including life, including how you see yourself, including how you see other people. And this light, which is a gift to people in darkness, it will bring with it joy. Joy will come with this light that is given to those in the dark. And so then he goes on to describe this event and he describes it maybe in a way that nobody in his audience expected that he would describe it. He says, for to us, a child is born 
For to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. Uh, Isaiah says that this light, which is gonna be given as a gift to people in the darkness, this light is gonna bring with it joy. And this joy is gonna be found in the birth of a baby. And on the heels of this baby's birth, a joy which the world has never known will come into the world. Uh, this baby who is God's son, God's Messiah, our King, our Savior, he is the light of the world that is shining to those in darkness, those living in the land of deep darkness. He is the gift that is given to a dark World, And this is how Isaiah described Christmas 700 or so years before Christmas actually took place. And then when you go to the New Testament and you open up the Gospels, uh, specifically to the Gospel of Luke, uh, after we're told that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, uh, Mary and Joseph are there. And that out there on the plains of Bethlehem, out there on the hills of Judea, are a group of shepherds. Now, this is just part of the Christmas story that all of us know about, but this is such an important part of the Christmas story because it's connected to the theme that we're talking about today. And in order to truly grasp the meaning and the scope and the magnitude of the Christmas story and to understand the nature of this gift of joy and light that has been given to the people in deep darkness, we have to first understand a little bit about the shepherds. Now, many of you know this, but some of you may not, but the shepherds were religious outsiders and outcasts in their day. Uh, that means that they didn't fit the religious mold of their day. Uh, the religious people of their day, the religious powers of their day had deemed them unclean, unholy, unwanted, unloved, unfit for the family and the kingdom of God. Now, this was the conventional thinking. Now, for those of us who know a little bit about the scriptures, just don't chalk this up to the Pharisees or to the Sadducees or the Herodians or the Essenes. This was the conventional thinking that had filtered out through most of the people in Israel. The conventional way of thinking, and here's the thing to think about. This is the best way to think about it. Had you been in Israel in the first century, had you been there during this particular time, don't give yourself more credit than what you deserve. You would have probably been a part of the conventional religious thinking of the day. You probably, chances are, would have already been in alignment with the religious establishment and the religious power and the religious agenda of the day. Because religion and cultural politics and societal norms, they were just also intertwined and placed together in one big bucket. It was hard to separate them out. And so you just ended up being a part of all of it. So the conventional thinking for most people was that God had no place in his kingdom and in his family for people like this. So that means they were hated. They were loathed. They were seen as one of the problems of society. Now we get this because as we're hearing this, we can also overlay our current cultural temperature over top of the New Testament narrative. And we know that this kind of stuff still exists today. There's people in our culture that are regarded as those that perhaps that God has no place for, that God has no room in his family for. Uh, people that it's easy for people of faith sometimes to hate, though we wouldn't say hate, but it's easy for us to hate or to loathe. Uh, we see them as 
recognize the problems or the pestilence of society. They are the ones taking everything to hell in a handbasket. Now in the first century, these were the shepherds and they were seen as less than human. Uh, they were lumped into the same categories as prostitutes and tax collectors. And for those who may not know, that was the worst of the worst. I mean, that was the pinnacle of sin. Prostitution, tax collecting, shepherds, you know, and a few other handful of things, that was like the worst that you could be. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. So these shepherds, they were deprived of certain civil rights in their day. Uh, they weren't allowed to sell milk. They weren't allowed to sell wool because if you purchase milk or wool from them, it would be assumed that if that product had been been sold to you by a shepherd, it must have been stolen to begin with. So you might be in custody of stolen property. So they weren't allowed to participate in the economy of the day. Uh, they weren't allowed to testify in court, whether on their behalf or somebody else's behalf. So they were stripped of those particular civil rights. They had been excommunicated from the temple. They weren't allowed to make sacrifices. And in that system, if you're not allowed to make sacrifices, then guess what? You have no covering for your sin. You have no forgiveness for your sin. You can have no right standing with God. You have to continue to live in your sin. And you're told, hey, that's your destiny. That's your lot. That's who you are. And everybody else, they just tried to stay away. Yet, when the Messiah is born, when the King, the Savior of the world is born, the very first group of people that receives the news about Christmas, it wasn't the priests in Jerusalem. It wasn't the Sanhedrin court. It wasn't the religious scholars or the religious lawyers. It wasn't the religious political zealots of the day. It wasn't the aristocracy of Jerusalem. It wasn't the movers and shakers. It wasn't the power brokers. It wasn't the influencers of the day. But the very first people that God chose to share the news of Christmas with were these shepherds. And so you know the story. The shepherds are out there taking care of their flock by night. And then all of a sudden, an angel appears to them. And it says, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Just not joy, but great joy for just not a few people, just not some of the people, but for all the people. Because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. To you, to who? The shepherds. The angel's talking in personal terms. This is, this is a personal message to the shepherds, but not only to the shepherds, but to all the people. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people because today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. So Christmas was first announced to a group of outcasts, a group of outsiders, a group of people who were too unclean and too unholy to go to the temple of God, to offer a sacrifice to God. Uh, these irreligious, immoral, top of the pyramid sinners were the first to hear the good news of Christmas. Uh, this is a group of shepherds bruised by religion. I don't know if any of you have ever been rejected by a church, rejected by Christians, told that you didn't belong, told that you weren't good enough. I, I don't know if any of you have ever walked in when you were kind of in the gutter of your life, you were walking in the darkness of that season and you walk into a church and everybody just looks at you like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You don't look like us. You don't dress like us. You don't talk like us. You don't know what we know. You can't quote what we quote. You don't know our songs. I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if anybody's ever pulled you aside and kind of talked to you like, hey, listen, 
this is not for you. And until you get your life in order, until you do this, until you do that, you know, you're, you're just gonna have to, you're just gonna have to stay away. And for some of us, it's absolutely hardly, it's not hardly possible for us to think about something like that happening, but it happens all the time. Uh, I hear stories about that all. I'm sure some of you hear stories about that all the time. This is, this is a group of shepherds that have been bruised by religion and probably to a certain extent, they've been broken by life. And the angel shows up and says, I give you good news. A group of people who aren't used to good news. Good news that will cause great joy. And it will cause great joy when you understand the implications of the good news. When you learn the scope of the good news. When you learn just how good the good news is, it's gonna lead to great joy. It was a message of inclusion. From the very beginning, the story of Christmas, the message of Christmas was a message of inclusion. And from the very beginning, what we see happening in the gospels, we see God tearing down walls that have been built by religion and by society and by culture. These walls that kept certain people away, that kept certain people out, that told certain people they weren't welcome, that told certain people you're not invited, that there's no place for you, that God doesn't have a seat for you at his table, that God doesn't have a place for you in his family. From the very beginning, Christmas began to dismantle those walls. And it was a message of good news that says, God doesn't love nations. God just doesn't love tribes. God just doesn't love certain groups, but God loves individuals. And God loves all individuals without any exceptions and without any exemptions. God loves the world and every single person in the world with a love that says it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you've done. I love you and I'm inviting you in. A love that says, I love you with a no strings attached, unconditional, undeserved, unearned kind of love that is free of charge to you, that there's nothing you have to do. There's no hoops you have to jump through, no ropes you have to climb over in order to have this love because you already have this love. It is good news that God loves you no matter who, no matter what. He loves you, he knows you by name, he knows your story, he knows your past, he knows your present, he knows your future, and he loves you anyway. It was good news that would cause great joy for all the people. And that's the reason you can't separate Christmas from joy. So that's Luke. But then when you circle back to Matthew, Matthew, when he tells the Christmas story, he doesn't begin with shepherds. He doesn't begin with wise men. He doesn't begin with Joseph. He doesn't begin with Mary. He begins with that boring part of the Bible that many of you have skipped over your entire life. Every time you committed to read the New Testament, you got to Matthew 1 and you found out it was just a big long page and a half of begatting. Begat, 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 begat. And it was the genealogy of Jesus. And what's the genealogy of Jesus? It's his 23andMe. It's his family tree. It's his ancestor. You know, this is all the people that came before Jesus. And there's a whole list of them. It's great. You should go home and you should read it. I mean, it's a long thing. And a lot of them you're not going to know, but some of them you can tra trace down. I just want to give you just a highlight of just a few of them to kind of set the tone for where we're going. Uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, I, I picked four women and I picked four men just because I want to be equal opportunity. Uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, you find people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Rehoboam, Solomon, Manasseh, and David. And let me just promise you, there's plenty more where these came from. 
You say, Tamar, who's Tamar? Well, I, I don't have time to tell you the story and, and probably we would have to give a parental guidance warning if we told her entire story. Uh, I mean, it is juicy. It is juicy. It is an after 11 type of movie. I, I, I mean, it's late night. Uh, you know, TBN would have to run it after 12 midnight because I mean, it, it, it's some serious stuff. Tamar's story was one of prostitution, deception, and incest. Now, can we all just agree that's not the best story? I think we can all just kind of, we're all on the same page, whether religious or not. I mean, prostitution, deception, incest, sleeping with your father-in-law, a whole bunch of other stuff going on. I mean, that's Tamar. And here she is as one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. I've told you before. Jesus had a lot of hookers as grannies. I, 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 I mean, there was a lot of people back there in his family tree that had it all messed up. I, I had a friend, I, I don't even think this is appropriate, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, because I'm just quoting and it makes it okay when you quote somebody. He did a series out of this called Ho, 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 talking about Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And I, I know, I can't believe it. He should have done it. And, and I say that to say, pray for him. All right, don't get mad at me. I didn't make it up. Tamar, and then you got Rahab, who's a prominent, prominent prostitute in Jericho. A prominent prostitute. How good do you have to be to be the best in your field? Some of you'd read the Bible if you'd read it like me. I mean, she was, she was first team all state in Jericho. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what she did, but I mean, everybody knew Rahab probably, uh, most scholars believe she probably was the CEO and owner of her own brothel. I mean, she probably networked uh, girls throughout Jericho. And here she is as part of the story of Jesus. And then you got Ruth, who was a Moabite, which means that her family ancestry was one of incest. I, I mean, just constant inbreeding was the beginning of her family line. She was a Moabite. She was on family welfare. And, and you know, uh, I, depending on, you know, how you read the story of Ruth, but just at surface level, Ruth kind of falls for this wealthy landowner named Boaz, who's a Jewish guy. Uh, and she waits for Boaz to have a few drinks one night. And, and when he's had a few and he's laying in bed, she decides this is the time I'm going to walk in there and make my play. I'm thinking, well, that's not bad strategy, Ruth. I, I, I mean, I feel like you got a good shot. And, and that's Ruth. And she ends up marrying Boaz, and she becomes part of the family tree. And then there's Bathsheba. And, and you know, Bathsheba, everybody knows Bathsheba. You know, she slept with King David. And, and so you got these four ladies that, you know, Matthew strategically makes sure he puts in the story. He doesn't leave them out. It would have been easy to leave them out. It would have been tempting to leave them out. Uh, I don't know if any of you have searched your family tree. Um, Lately, but I, I did, you know, I got on the kick, of, you know, about maybe three years ago or so. And, and then, you know, after about the fifth prison record of my distant relative, I just, I'm giving this up. I mean, we're just thieves, gamblers, liars, killers. I, I, I mean, what happened back there? And, you know, we get embarrassed. It's like, well, I'm not going to tell anybody about that. 
Matthew says, I want to tell the world where Jesus came from. And, and then he talks about, you know, Rehoboam, uh, who was one of David's grandsons, who was so stupid and so arrogant that he caused a civil war and caused the kingdom of Israel to split. His dad, Solomon, who married over 700 wives, why we call him the wisest man who ever lived, I will never understand what's up with that. He's got all these hundreds of wives. He ended up, listen, he ended up not only going off into idolatry, but here's one of the great tensions of the Old Testament, at least for me, he dies in idolatry. He dies as an idolater. He dies in sin. He dies in the practice of idolatry. We have no record of him ever coming back, never returning back. But here he is, right here, front and center in the genealogy of Jesus. Then you got Manasseh, who was regarded as the worst king, the most evil king, self-sacrificed one of his own sons, turned the temple turned the temple into a brothel. Are you seeing uh, kind of a common theme through this? Turned the temple into a brothel. And here he is. And then David, David. And of course, we know so much of David. Yes, a man after God's own heart. But, but here's the thing we forget. When David was dying, when David was older and kind of sick and nobody knew if he was dying or not, do you know how they, how they had to figure out whether or not David was actually sick and dying? They had to put a young, beautiful woman in bed with him. And when he didn't try anything, they were like, man, he is so sick. <laughs> Lord have mercy. That's David. It's like, some of you, is that really in there? Just go call your real pastor and ask him. And if he's honest, he'll say yes. And it's like, these stories, so scandalous, so upside down, so tipsy-turvy, so like dark and, and just Ah, uh, I mean, oh my goodness. It's like nobody, nobody would want to put this in the story of Jesus. But Matthew said, I want you to know that Jesus came from sinners for sinners. I want you to know where he came from. And in understanding where he came from, you can understand who he came to and who he came for. And so when it comes to Christmas, at the very heart of Christmas is the outsider, the outcast, those who are not good at being good. Those who are bruised and broken by life and by religion and who struggle to cling on to faith. And even though they have faith, sometimes they just let the bottom fall out. And sometimes they just make just boneheaded decision with grave consequences. And all throughout the Christmas story, this is the theme you find. People who are outcast, outsiders, marginalized, scandalous, people who often lived with a great degree of darkness. That's why the Christmas story has this ongoing theme of good news that leads to great joy. Uh, Matthew's record, his genealogy of Jesus, kind of in sync with what Luke was communicating with the shepherds and the angels. Uh, Matthew moves forward into the ministry of Jesus, and he says that when Jesus' ministry went public, after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness, uh, Matthew says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming, talk to me, the good news of the kingdom. So again, this good news, what started with the angels, talking to the shepherds, uh, what Matthew was doing in a really creative way, was communicating the good news that Jesus came from sinners for sinners. Now, Jesus, when he preached, it was good news. Uh, when people heard it, the first thing that people thought to themselves was, 
this is good news. If this is true, this is good news. And it was good news for all people. Now you gotta think about this. When people heard Jesus preach and when Jesus taught and when Jesus told his stories and people listened, when people heard it, it didn't sound oppressive to them. It sounded like good news. Does good news sound oppressive? No. Did it feel like or sound like a burden? No, it sounded like and it felt like good news. It felt like freedom, it felt like rest. And when people heard it, they could take a deep breath in and they said, I'm not sure if this is true, but if it is true, it is certainly good. It is such good news. It begins to create great joy because of what it means for that individual and for all the individuals of the world. It was good news that sounded too good to be true, but yet it was true. It's this good news that God loves you. God loves the Tamars of the world and God loves the Ruths of the world and God loves the Rahabs of the world and God loves the Manassas of the world and God loves the Solomons of the world and the Davids of the world and God loves you and God loves you no matter who you are and God loves you no matter what you've done because Jesus came from sinners for sinners. And the good news is there's room in God's family for you. And there's room in God's family for anyone. And God is inviting you to it. God is inviting anyone to it. There's a seat at his table and he's inviting you to sit in it. He's inviting those of the world to find their seat around his table. And this was Jesus's message. It was good news to outsiders, to the outcasts, to the immoral, to the irreligious. But it was not good news to those stuck in religion. Those who were a part of the establishment, they didn't hear good news. They heard something threatening. They heard something that could lead to a slippery slope. They heard things that could cause ripples, that could undermine their system, their privilege, their power, their influence. But for those living in darkness, they had seen a great light. For those who were in deep darkness, joy had come on the other side of this good news. And so Jesus shows up and he begins to preach this good news and he just begins to use his entire ministry to reveal to people how good this God of the good news actually was. That not only is there good news, but Jesus would proclaim this good news and in proclaiming this good news, he would point back to this good God who would send this good news into the world for people who weren't so good. What did Matthew record? He says, all of these things concerning Jesus was fulfilled. It was, it happened so that the prophet of the, you know, the words of the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. Or as John, as he would do his best to write about, you know, Christmas in his own cosmic way, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then when you jump down to verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the Logos, the glory of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And then he gets to verse 18 and he says, no one has ever seen God, 
But this one, the only one sent from the Father is the one who came to reveal him to the world. He is the one who has come to pull back the curtain to help us know who God is, what he's like and how he feels about us. Because if you want joy, you gotta start there. Who is God? What is he like? And how does he feel about me? And it was John there in John 1 who referred to this logos, referring to God incarnate, God in a body, stepping into the world as this light that was shining into the darkness and the darkness did not apprehend it. The darkness could not stop it. And so Jesus, he brings light to who God is and what God's like and how God feels about you and how God feels about me and how God feels about all the people of the world. Jesus said, just to set the record straight, when it comes to me, I and the Father, we're one. When people say that Jesus never made claims of divinity, I don't think they've ever read the gospel of John. They, they've never read all the places where Jesus would say before Abraham was, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Over and over again, Jesus would make statements that placed equality between him and his Father. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. He claimed to be the best explanation of God. Jesus said, I want to correct your misinterpretations about who God is and what he's like and how he feels about you and how he feels about everybody else. Jesus, in this good news, would say to you and say to me, I don't want you to believe things to be true about God that aren't true about God. Because if you believe things to be true about God that aren't true about God, you'll never have the joy of the good news that came when the light came into the world. A lot of people's idea of God may be yours. Maybe it's the idea of God you grew up with. A lot of people walk around with the idea that God's angry, God's always mad. God's always disappointed, God's always frustrated, God's always irritated, God's always waiting for you to mess up, for me to mess up, so he could just jot it down, so he could just keep the score. Another jot in the column, another jot in the column. I'm gonna get you, my pretty. Uh, Just five more, just seven more, just 10 more, always just waiting for God to open up and let all hell break loose. That he's just always up there. And that's kind of the idea that a lot of people walk around with God. No wonder they don't wanna come to the local church. Because they believe in a God who's eager to condemn, eager to judge. A God who may love me, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me. But Jesus said, I want to give you good news of great joy because that's not who God is and that's not what he's like and that's not how he feels about you. Jesus came into the world to reveal the Father to the world. He said, what does that mean? It means if your ideas about God don't look like Jesus, you have the wrong ideas about God. If the first place you run is to the Old Testament to figure out what God's like, you have ran to the wrong place. If the first place you run is to the writings of Paul or the writings of John or the writings of Jude to find out what God's like, you have ran to the wrong place. To find out who God is like, you put your eyes squarely on Jesus. You listen to him, you look to him, and then what you see in Jesus gives you the light that you need to read all the other texts to know who God is, 
what he's like and how he actually feels about you. Jesus introduced us to a God who was infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful, rich in compassion, who's patient, who refuses to condemn, who desires to forgive, who wants nothing more than to win his family back. So how did Jesus teach us all this? Well, I'm gonna give these to you really quick. Jesus revealed this to you and to me. This was light coming into the world. This was good news coming into the world that would cause great joy for all people. Jesus showed us what God was like by the stories he told. Jesus told stories about how gracious and how merciful God is. And in those stories, those parables, those illustrations that Jesus would make, he was pulling back the curtain to say, this is who God is, this is what God is like, this is how he feels about you. Some of you, you, you know these stories, but one day Jesus told about a shepherd who had 100 sheep. But on one particular day, he looks up and there's only 99 sheep. And one of those sheep wandered away, lost its way, and couldn't find its way back. And when the shepherd could have condemned that lamb and said, just a dumb, stupid lamb, I've told it over and over again. If you wander away, if you lose your way, you're on your own. You're just gonna have to deal with the consequences. But no, he counted his sheep. He found out there was 99. There was one that was missing. And you know what Jesus said the shepherd did? He left the 99. He left all the wealth of the 99. He left all the security of the 99 and it was reckless kind of thing. It was a risk it all, sacrifice it all kind of love that this shepherd had for the one lost lamb. And it made no sense. It was counterintuitive. It didn't make economical sense. It didn't make common sense. Why would you risk 99 to go after one? Because the shepherd was full of goodness and kindness and mercy and grace and love for the one that got away. And Jesus said, if you want to know what your heavenly father's like, he's like that shepherd. And if you want to know who you are in the story, you're the one that wandered away lost its way and couldn't find its way. And when the shepherd goes and finds that lamb and picks it up and brings it back, you know what you call that for that one lost lamb? Good news. You call it good news of great joy. Do you know who it wasn't good news for? The 99 that was never lost, that had never lost its way, that never had to be rescued. Jesus tells a story about some workers. This is one of my favorite. I talk about it all the time. Jesus told some stories about some workers and this landowner goes out and says, hey, I need some people to work for me. I, I need to employ some people. And so, you know, some people showed up first thing in the morning, said, what do you need us to do, boss? He said, would you go to the fields and work? And so they started the first thing, first light. They're out there. They're working all day. Another group of workers around lunchtime, he goes out and he says, I, I need some more workers. And so he hires another group of workers at lunchtime. He says, go to the field, just jump right in. And then at the end of the day, at the very end of the day, a group of workers show up and say, hey, we want to work too. He says, go have at it. And then when it comes time to settle up, Jesus said the wealthy landowner, he pays them all a full day's wage. And a group of people listening to the parable, they're kind of offended. So why are these people who are coming in at the last moment who didn't do anything? They didn't pay the price that those who came at the very beginning of the day. They didn't pay half the price of those who came at the middle of the day. But you're gonna give them a full day's wage? And Jesus, what you don't understand is all that received anything, it was grace. It was grace to invite them in to begin with. 
And so he gave those who worked all day the same as those who worked half a day and those who worked at the end of the day. And you know, for those who came in at the last moment, do you know what that was? Oh, that was good news. That was good news, a great joy. It was grace, it was mercy, it was love. And listen, here's the thing, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, it doesn't make sense on paper. It doesn't add up. It's not two plus two equals four. The mathematics of grace, it's upside down. You can't make sense of it. It betrays our inclination. It it betrays our instinct. Jesus said, hey, let me tell you a story about forgiveness. If you wanna forgive, listen, somebody does you wrong, forgive them 70 times seven. Why should I forgive them 70 times seven? Because that's what your heavenly father has done for you. And what was he saying? It's unlimited. There's no limits. There's no bounds on God's forgiveness to you. And you know what you call that? That I can keep going back time and time and time and time and time again for forgiveness that is free and full anytime I need it, anytime you need it, anytime anyone needs it. Do you know what you call that? Good news. Jesus told a story about a son who said, Father, I hope you die, I want your inheritance. And the father funded the little punk's departure that little brother, that prodigal, went off. He met up with some Tamars and Rahabs. He went on a bender. He spent all of his inheritance until he woke up in the gutter. And then he thought to himself, I'll go back home, but, n- but not as a son, I'll go back as a slave. And you remember he worked up this big speech and I said, Father, I'm, I'm not gonna ask for forgiveness. I'm just gonna ask for just a place to work off this debt that I've caused you and my family. And he headed back and remember the father saw him afar off and he had compassion on him. The father was waiting. The father was eager. And the father saw his son and there was no anger in his heart. The father saw his son coming. There was no condemnation in his heart. The father saw what a father is supposed to see. He saw his son. He saw beyond what had happened. He saw beyond what had been said. He saw beyond what had been done. He saw beyond the mud of the hog pen, beyond the stench of all of his choices, beyond the pain of all the broken relationships, all the spoken words, the disappointment of his departure. And he ran to him and he loved him and he hugged him and he threw a party for him. Just as though nothing had ever happened. The son had broken the father's heart, but the one thing the son could never break was the father's love. And Jesus said, if you ever wanna know what God's like, you may wander away and you may spend all that you have and end up in the darkest of places, but light has shined into the world. And it's the good news that you can always, always, always come back home. That you can break the father's law but you'll never break your father's love. And he loves you. He's not mad at you. And when you come back, (laughs) there's gonna be a party. There's gonna be a celebration. It's gonna be good news for every prodigal who decides to make that long walk back to the father's house. To know that when God looks at you, he looks beyond all of the stuff, beyond the mud, beyond the stench, and he sees the one that he loves. 
Jesus showed us who the father was by the interactions that he had with people from a leper that nobody was supposed to come near, nobody was supposed to touch. Lepers who were not supposed to approach religious leaders because they were so holy and so righteous. But when he saw Jesus, lepers felt comfortable approaching him. They were untouchable, they'd been told they're unlovable, they were unclean, they were uninvited, they were unholy, but you know what Jesus does? When the, when the leper asked Jesus, hey, will you, are you willing to make me whole? Do you know what Jesus would do? He would break all religious protocol, all social protocols. He crossed all the religious and social lines and he touched him and he healed him. And for that leper, it was unthinkable. And for that leper, that day would be unforgettable. And Jesus said, that's what your heavenly father's like. He'll touch those no one else wants to touch. He'll embrace those that no one else wants to embrace because that's what he is. That's who he is. That's what he's like. There's that centurion, you remember him, who was the symbol of Roman occupation, responsible for so much suffering and so much oppression in, in, in Jerusalem and throughout Palestine and really throughout the known world at that particular time. And he comes up to Jesus and says, my servant's sick. You don't have to come to my house, but if you'll just speak the word, I know he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I've not found such great faith like this in all of Israel, but that's not even the best part. Jesus says to all of his followers who are there, who are all Jewish, he says, one day they will come from north, south, east, and west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And everybody there knew exactly what he was saying, that these Gentile dogs, these unclean, unholy, uninvited Gentiles outside the covenants of promises made to Israel, that they were going to be there in the kingdom and sit down with the patriarchs themselves. And you know what? For Gentiles, you know what you call that? Good news. I can tell you about Matthew, the tax collector, a scum, a traitor, a person who had betrayed his family, betrayed his nation, betrayed his religion in many ways, regarded as a person who had no hope. But Jesus walks up to Matthew one day and says, follow me. You can follow me. You can be with me. Come on. And you know for Matthew, what you call that? Good news. He was never the same. Gonna give you two more, last two. How about the woman caught in the very act of adultery? Remember her? Every interaction, when you read the gospels, when you're reading these interactions, they're not benign. They're not meaningless. This is Jesus showing us what our father's like. She was caught in the very act. I mean, I don't even, can, can you even imagine that? Drugged Jesus as he was teaching at the temple. Threw her down at the feet of Jesus as he was teaching. And they all got the stones. Remember, they got the stones. They're ready to stone her because the law of Moses, the scriptures, the scriptures, the inspired scripture says that she is worthy of death. And Jesus, he wrote down on the ground. We don't even know what he wrote on the ground, but he, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And he said, let you without sin cast the first stone. Remember what they did? They dropped their stones. And my favorite part of that story, I'll, I'll never forget every time I tell the story, I have to say it this way. There was only one in the crowd that day without a stone. And he was the only one without sin. And once they walked away, he looked at the woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm not gonna make you pay for your sins because what you don't know yet is I'm going to pay 
for your sins. And you know what? Neither do I condemn you. You know what that is? That's good news. That's such good news. And then the last one, Luke 23, Jesus is crucified on Golgotha. Two thieves, one on each side. Crowd is mocking Jesus, insulting Jesus. Jesus, there between those two thieves, says, Father, forgive all these people. They don't know what they're doing. And those two thieves are just taking it all in. And one of those thieves began to mock Jesus and say, if you're so big, if you're so mighty, you saved others, why don't you save yourselves and us? And the other thief, he's, he's listening to his friend. He's paying attention to Jesus. And he speaks up and he says to his friend, this other thief, he said, we're punished justly for what we're getting. We're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, if heaven's for good people, if it's for people who are moral and keep all the rules, if it's for religious people, if the kingdom of God is for people who get it right, who never screw up, who never fall short, we have no hope because we're getting what we deserve. We have no chance. And in this moment, his only chance, this one thief, he didn't have time to turn over a new leaf. He didn't have time for communion. He didn't have time for baptism. He didn't have time for good works. He didn't have time to make a public declaration of any kind. His only chance was grace and mercy. And he said to Jesus, hey, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Would you remember? I, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing that I can do. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, you will be with me today paradise and in that moment that thief's past his worst moments his worst decisions his shame his guilt his regrets his missteps it all gave way to the mercy and the grace of God and Jesus said today today you will be with me in paradise and you know what that is that's good news Jesus revealed who the Father was by the stories he told, by the interactions he had, but the last one is the cross. Jesus reveals to us who the Father is at the cross. If you wanna know how God feels about you, just look to the cross. If you wanna see how far our sin will go, just look to the cross. But if you wanna see how far the Father's love will go for you and for me and for the world, just look to the cross. Because the good news, the good news is this, God cares more about who people are than about what people have done. That's good news. The good news is that God cares more about sinners than he does their sin. That's good news. And the good news is that God's capacity to forgive is greater than my capacity to sin. That's good news. That creates great joy for all people. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people because today in the city of David, a savior has been born who is Messiah, who is the Lord. Jesus, you preach good news about a father in heaven who loves us, who gave his son for us a sacrifice of sin. 
good news for those of us who aren't good to say that we can be good with God, not because of who we are, but because of the light that has come into the darkness. This good news that God loves me unconditionally, without limit, without restraint, a reckless love, a love that doesn't make sense. God today, remind us that's how we're loved. Remind us that's who you are. And God, may we find joy and freedom and life in that. We are loved by you no matter what. That there's mercy available to us no matter what. In Jesus' name.